0: Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, It's been a good week, and uh, I know we're... Excited to be in this space uh, with no AC and all that good stuff as well, and so I—I I had a few jokes about hell, uh, but I'm just going <laughs> to refrain from those uh, for the time being. Uh, but it was also just good this week to even see on social media kind of the—the the just memory lane of of kind of where we've been as a church from you know starting off in the Durans' house in their living room when we were just eight to ten people, and and. Uh, even ironically, when I think back on some of those, we actually at one point had a full drum kit set up in their living room doing worship uh, with like eight people. And so I don't think we actually have had a full drum kit since then. Um, But it was something that I just remember when we were there and just thinking, this is so loud. I literally hear nothing else other than this snare right next to me. Uh, But it was just a sweet time, a sweet moment. And then You know, kind of transitioning from there and moving to the dark and depressing movie theater that we were in for about 20 months, uh, where it was like way bigger than anything we really needed, but yet it was still a time in which God brought us to a place that allowed for us to continue, no matter what size we were, to be able to gather the saints for worship and to be able to encourage one another and sing together with each other. And then, of course, moving from there to the refinery was such a great season for us. Um, to just continue doing what God has called us to do, and that is to gather with one another. And so bringing us here is, is no exception. It's no difference. And it's just still seeing the faithfulness of God. It's just still seeing the fact that He loves us and that He cares for us and that He's for us and that He's pursuing us and that He is still continuing to grow us and uh, continuing to, to allow us to be fruitful and to multiply. And so what I want to do today is just, again, kind of talking about that idea of God's faithfulness to his people and that his promises do ultimately find their yes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What I want to do as we continue on in this series of Christian story and Christian belief and Christian formation is how we see God now move into that third bucket. And so if you've been with us from the beginning of this series, Uh, We're really looking at just God's big story, His big picture throughout the entire Bible. What is God revealing? What is God saying to us about who He is and what He's ultimately accomplishing? Um, and, And what we've seen through that is really you can divide it into four buckets or four chapters, if you will, of how God is putting a story together. And what we looked at first was creation. And just that God created everything and he created everything in such a way that he viewed it as good and very good and that he loved it and that he blessed it and that he told it to be fruitful and multiply. And then that creation rebelled against God, broke it, sinned, entered into the world and everything that God created to be good and very good was no longer good or very good. It became bad, it became sinful, it became broken, it became fractured. And so what was meant to represent or... Uh, image, the the beauty of God, now reflects it in a negative way, reflects it in a fractured way, reflects it in a broken way. And so God, because his image is at stake, God, because his glory is on the line when it comes to rightly viewing him and seeing him and being able to worship him, he puts together a plan. And it's not like a reactionary plan, all right? It's not like In the Garden of Eden, we sinned, and then God was like, whoops, I didn't see that coming. I didn't see that happen. I need to figure this out. God knew from the very beginning, before anything ever happened, knew what was going to happen. And he had a plan. And so what I want to do today, hopefully in a short amount of time, is just walk through some stories throughout the Old Testament that point to or reflect God's beautiful plan to fix what we broke. And so that it gives us a promise. It gives us hope. It gives us something to ultimately trust in that even as we walk through on a daily basis our brokenness and our failures and our mistakes and our mishappenings or whatever it is that we're dealing with, we can trust in the promises of God. We can put hope in the promises of God. We can put hope in the fact that God himself has rigged history to work out in his favor in order to redeem a people For His good pleasure. And that's what we get to put hope in. That's what we get to trust in. And I know I've faintly just heard an amen out there. It's loud in here. And so if you are going to respond, respond loudly so that I can actually hear it. Thank you. Thank you. That's good. There might not have been one out there. I just threw that out there. Now, I know many of us, and and, well, let me kind of back this up a little bit uh, to kind of give you, I'm not going to go expository today. And what I mean by that is like looking at a verse and really diving into that verse and exegeting it from scripture. What I am going to do today is what you typically experience when you go to the movies. Now, I know we haven't been to the movies in a while for a lot of us in here. But when you go to the movies, my favorite part of going to the movies is the previews ahead of time. I know some people are like, I can't wait to get through the previews just to get to the movie. But like, if if the movie starts at 7 o'clock, like I need to be there by 6.20 because I do not want to miss any of the previews. I love the previews. And a lot of times I can just leave after the previews are done. But I want to see them. And so what we're going to be doing today is I'm just going to be throwing previews at you of the stories that are pointing to Christ, that shows that Christ himself is the actual fulfillment of, ...of what God has revealed to us in the Old Testament. As he says, uh, in a moment of weakness and misunderstanding of the disciples about 2,000 years ago... ...Jesus corrected and encouraged his disciples with this truth in Luke twenty-four, twenty-five through 27 And he said to them, "...O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory?" And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what Jesus is doing in this moment, when he's sitting around his disciples, Jesus takes his disciples' failure of not actually trusting or believing him at what he says as an opportunity to demonstrate that all of scripture, which at this point when he's teaching them, when he's talking with them, what was considered all of scripture is the Old Testament of Our Bible, And it's in some form or fashion all pointing to him and finds its fulfillment in him. So that even as he gets down to verse 44, he says this, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so in case you're not understanding kind of what it means when it says, the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms, that's a way in which the New Testament writers of our Bible would categorize or put all of the Old Testament into one phrase. So anytime you're walking through the New Testament and you see them point to or say whatever the Law of Moses and the Prophets or in the Psalms or and the wisdom literatures, anytime that they group those together, they're referring to the totality of Scripture in the Old Testament. And so what Jesus is saying here to these disciples is everything that is written that has been revealed to you by God himself through the law of Moses which the law of Moses can be summed up as the first five books of your Old Testament, all right? It's considered the Pentateuch. It's considered the, the first five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, written and recorded by Moses, are considered to be the law of God, all right? It's not just 10 commandments. It's over 600 commandments that God gave to the people in order, if they were to live by them, would be the standard of righteousness, So in addition to that, then they have prophets. They have these men called by God, revealed to them the word of God to then go and warn the people. This is what God has said to us. And then you get into the Psalms and the wisdom literatures where you've got Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Job. Those are the wisdom literatures that literally are God providing wisdom to the people through viceroys being able to say, this is what God is saying is good and right and holy. This is how we should live. And so what Jesus is doing is he's taking all of those categories, pulling them together and saying, there's many of you who have interpreted it this way. There's many of you, as you kind of even look through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus tells the people, you've heard it said, but this is what it actually means. What people have done in the first... A century during this time is they've taken all of the law they've taken all of the prophets they've taken all of the wisdom literatures and they have interpreted for themselves a religious system or a belief system and what Jesus is doing is he's coming into our world and as he comes into our world he's declaring it's not about what you interpret. It's not about what you think it means. It's not about this over here. It's not about this event or history. It's not about abiding by the rules perfectly. What it's all about is ultimately you not missing me. You seeing that I'm the point. I'm the theme. I'm the plot. It's all coming to fruition ultimately through Jesus Christ in his person. And so that's why when we, when we often say, um, read Jesus into the word or into the scriptures is us saying from Genesis to Revelation it's all about Jesus. And that's really the main point today. It's all about Jesus. There's not one iota that which is just a dot. There's not one thing in scripture that does not point to or declare the coming Messiah of Jesus Christ. Or pointing back to the fact that He has come and we are to place trust in Him. So whether they were Old Testament looking forward to the Messiah that was to come. Or their New Testament looking back on the Messiah who did come and did the work of salvation for us. Everything culminates and literally history is measured by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do today is just give you again some trailers To be able to see that the Old Testament is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. And picking it up where we left off in Genesis, in the fall of Genesis 3, you get the first gospel that's preached. And I know you've heard me mention this a couple of times in the last few weeks. But it's called the Proto-Evangelion, which is just a fancy word for saying the first gospel. And we see this in Genesis Genesis 3.15 where he says, To the serpent, Satan in the garden... In verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this is ultimately alluding to the fact that Jesus Christ is going to come through the offspring of the woman and that this Jesus, this Messiah, who's ultimately going to come from the offspring of the woman will one day, through his death, his bruise, is going to ultimately crush the head of the serpent, which is a... Kill shot. I mean, it is putting the serpent to death once and for all. It's putting to death death once and for all. It's putting to death evil once and, for all. once and for all. It's putting to death sin once and for all. It's a death blow. And so this is God saying from the very beginning, I've rigged it. No matter what you've done in this garden, I've got a plan that's going to ultimately solve it. This is a promise that God gives to us from there, as you kind of move on from Adam and Eve, because they're fruitful and they're multiplying, so they are an offspring, we come to Genesis chapter 5. Just a couple of chapters later, we meet a man named Noah, all right? Noah. And this is what we know about Noah. He is, and this is a phrase that I'm going to use often that we see in, in the New Testament, he is a type of Christ, all right? He is not Christ himself. He is a type of Christ or a shadow of Christ. And so if you think about it this way, if you've got Jesus who's coming in as the light of the world, one thing that God does is as He shines the light on Jesus Christ, and there are shadows depicted of Christ throughout the Old Testament, this is the language Hebrews is using, is that we see these shadows, we see these types of Christ in these different characters, events, and, and, and stories that are played out throughout the Old Testament. And so Noah is a type of Christ where it's not just some fancy story that we read to uh, the children in children's church, but rather this is a story that is depicting literally a salvation moment that is happening of these people that is foreshadowing an ultimate event that is going to happen in a similar fashion. And so in Genesis 5.29, we see Lamech, who is uh, a descendant of, uh, of Adam and Eve, Lamech had a son and called his name Noah, saying, "Out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands." And so you've get this promise given to Lamech about his son Noah, that Noah is going to provide relief. Rest. This isn't just a moment in which he's going to provide salvation for his family and for the people that are coming after him, but also relief. And rest, something that ultimately only can be found in Christ, in Christ alone. And if you know anything about Noah, during that time corruption had gone throughout the entire land, throughout the entire land, where literally God only considers Noah the only righteous one left, the only righteous one left. Now we know Noah, even though considered righteous, is not perfect. All right, he is not perfect. He is not sinless nor will we see any character throughout the Old Testament considered sinless. Not one person. So there's got to be something to this idea of him being considered righteous, even though he is still sinful. And the reason why we know he's sinful is because if you know the story of Noah, and you know that he creates an ark, and you know that God floods the earth, uh, his judgment comes on all those who are corrupt, Noah is saved, his family is saved, he takes two of every animal, brings them on the ark, they are saved. He ultimately docks uh, sometime later. And as he docks on dry land, the first thing Noah does is he goes camping, gets drunk and passes out naked in a tent. Like not necessarily a righteous thing to do, right? Now I know many of you are thinking, can we do a guy's camping trip in the fall? Like if we do, let's not do it this way. All right, let's, let's think about it in another righteous way. But God through Noah does something that foreshadows what ultimately Christ is going to do. So if we're putting Noah in the type of Christ, as the image of Christ, what we are seeing is him providing a way to create a new humanity to where through the wood of the ark, foreshadowing the wood of the cross, he provides an opportunity, a way out for the waters of judgment to come and flood the people but provide salvation for those who are on the ark for his family. So that as the waters of judgment come and wipe out all that's corrupt, wipe out all of our sin, we are then brought through salvation, the cross of Jesus Christ, into the new humanity as Noah and his family go and then be fruitful and multiply. Which leads us a few chapters later to another couple of sons, Abraham and Isaac. Continuing through the Old Testament, this brings us up to Genesis chapter 22. And I'm going to read this story out for you. So Abraham, and if you know anything about the Old Testament, Abraham is a big deal, all right? Abraham becomes literally the father of an ultimate nation that begins or or eventually becomes the Israelites that we know of. Genesis 22, 1 through 14, this is a story of that Abraham who later has a son named Isaac, his one and only son, And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went together. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So you've got this, again, not a great camping story, especially for sons, uh, when it comes to going and spending some time with dad. You've got Abraham and Isaac. You've got Isaac understanding what worship looks like in this day and age. And as they're walking out, God has asked Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son. And you even see this picture of Isaac carrying the wood, the one and only son, to this altar of sacrifice that ultimately is foreshadowing Jesus Christ, God's one and only son, carrying the wood of the cross, to the altar of sacrifice, which happens to be on a mountain. And in this moment, the beautiful thing about Isaac is that it actually depicts two things at the same time. Not only is Isaac depicting Jesus Christ carrying the wood for us, but Isaac is also depicting us in the fact that we are meant to carry the wood to our own sacrifice because we are sinners deserving of death that we saw over the last three weeks. But when we get to the altar and God railing up his hand to ultimately take that last blow of death to us because of our sin removes us from the altar and provides a substitute. And in this story, it's a ram caught in the thicket, but we ultimately know that that is a foreshadowing, a pointing of the true lamb of God that would be provided, Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ himself. As we continue on from there, we know that Isaac ultimately has a son named Jacob. And this son, Jacob, becomes the father of 12 sons. 12 sons ultimately becoming the nation of Israel. But with Jacob, there's an interesting thing that happens when Jacob has a dream. And this dream comes down to, uh, this brings us to Genesis chapter 28. And I just want to read you this dream because it's really interesting. Jacob came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac." Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So we have Jacob. I mean, camping's a big deal here, right? So he's out in the wilderness camping, finding a rock to rest his head. So if you're kind of thinking, man, it's uncomfortable in here, he's using a a rock as a pillow, okay? All right, that's what he's kind of dealing with here. Jacob falls asleep and he has this dream. And in this dream, he sees this ladder, which, which could be interpreted as like a ziggurat, almost like a pyramid of steps where, where he sees the heavens opened up and the angels ascending and descending on this ziggurat, on this, on this ladder, if you will. And it's an interesting dream. And he's wondering kind of how it's interpreted. And Jesus ultimately interprets it in John 1, 43 through 51, when he says this. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip then found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Which is basically him saying, We found the Messiah. We found the chosen one. Philip said to him, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Verse forty eight, Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he then said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so you've got these Israelites interpreting the dream of Jacob, trying to figure out there's a ladder, there's a way, there is a path in order for us to ultimately get into heaven. And we've got to figure out that path, we've got to figure out how to find this ladder. And ultimately what they ended up doing is they try to build it themselves and they mess up. What we then see Jesus interpreting that or fulfilling that is the only way to ascend or descend into heaven is ultimately on the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself. Jesus pointing back to this story of Jacob and Jacob saying, or this dream coming to Jacob saying that through your descendants, there will be one who will bless you all the nations of the earth. Ultimately, we see that blessing come to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ as he is the actual ladder, the only way for us to ascend or descend into heaven and experience the blessing that comes there. As we keep moving forward, Jacob eventually becomes Israel. His name gets changed and he has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation. Israel as a people are considered a type of Christ, as a people, as a nation, not just an individual person, but as a nation are considered a shadow of Jesus Christ. And this is where I love seeing some of the similarities of what they experienced as a people and what Jesus Christ experienced himself as an individual. Because one of the things that they were ultimately trying to do was get to the promised land that's flowing with milk and honey and air conditioning. It's beautiful. They can't wait to ultimately get there. But it's ultimately not going to be fulfilled in just a land that they inherit that is flowing with milk and honey, but ultimately inherited a salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. The Israelites have grown to be this huge nation However, they find themselves in slavery and in bondage to the Egyptians. God promised to free them and, again, bring them to that promised land. And we start to see here a parallel of events that happen, not only to the Israelites, but also to Jesus Christ himself. We even see this in the Exodus in 11 and 12, where the Israelites are are enslaved in Exodus. And there's these ten plagues that come to Pharaoh, Free my people. They're not willing to free their people, so God keeps sending one plague after another plague. Free my people. Not willing to free the people. Sends another plague. And it gets down to the 10th plague. And the 10th plague that God sends to the land is that the firstborn under two years old would be killed. That the angel of the Lord will actually pass through the entire land and kill the firstborn. Now that's really important because the firstborn means legacy. Legacy inheritance it's birthright it means your family's legacy inheritance is is secure because of your firstborn and he's ultimately going to come through and wipe that out you will have no future you will have no future unless you free my people but the Israelites are in the land as well and the angel of the Lord is not going to pass over them either because again the Israelites even though they're God's chosen people they're not perfect They're just as sinful. Moses, right before he actually gets called to be the person who's going to free the people or lead them out of of the Exodus, lead them out of the Egyptian slavery, kills the guy, murders the guy because of his outrage. Not perfect. So the only way that the angel of the Lord is going to pass over the people who are God's people, the firstborn among them, is he actually then asks each of the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb, to take the blood of that sacrificed lamb and to literally paint it over their doorsteps. So that as the angel passes through the land, killing the firstborn, any doorpost that he sees with the blood of the lamb painted over it, he will move on to the next house. And we see that as, I mean, again, just such a beautiful story, a a gruesome story, but a beautiful story where God is providing a sacrifice, bloodshed to cover the sins of the people in order to provide salvation for them. A picture foreshadowing ultimately Christ's sacrifice as the perfect spotless lamb that when he sheds his blood, that blood would then be covered over the doorposts of our hearts so that as the wrath of God moves through the land, ultimately once and for all, wiping us out and killing us and taking us to hell, for those who have the blood of Jesus spread over the heart of their doorposts, the angel of the Lord, the wrath of God will pass over us and bring us into that ladder, up into heaven through the work of Jesus Christ. Another thing that we see is as they are then freed from that land, the first thing that they see is they come to some water. And as the Israelites come to water, the Egyptians are running right after them, trying to get them back into slavery. They're like, even though we freed them, we need them back. And as they come to this water, Moses, now a type of Christ, the leader of the Israelites, comes to this water with a wooden staff, holds it out, and God then parts the waters. And we literally see the first baptism of a nation. We see them walk through the dry land of the Red Sea with the waters parted on both sides and the Israelites safely make it to the other side. And as they make it to the other side, you then see the Egyptians following right after them, the waters closing in and wiping them out. And we see two things happening. Not only are you represented as the Israelites, but you are also represented as the the Egyptians in this story. Because there is an old flesh and then there is a new person. You as a sinner are the Egyptians in the story. You as a righteous saint are the Israelites who come through on the other side. And this is where God brings again His judgment waters down on His people and buries them in their sin. But through the type of Christ Moses... The wood of His staff, the cross of Jesus Christ, brings them through the water safely to their side to create a new humanity, a new Israel that is heading towards the new promised land. Now, Israel, because, again, they're not perfect, they're not righteous, they're not uh, ultimately fulfilling exactly what God wants them to fulfill, they wander in the wilderness for about 40 years, even though, ironically... For 40 years, they're wandering around a promised land that's literally two weeks away. Two weeks away, but they wander for 40 years. Jesus, who also, and this is again a, a beautiful story that you can see paralleled out, is when he's an infant, there's a decree that goes out that because King Herod is, is, is scared about the fact that there's going to be a new king born desires to have all the, the sons in Bethlehem under two years old killed, just like what we see in Egypt here. E, uh, Jesus and Joseph and his, and his mom Mary, they flee to Egypt in order for Jesus to be safe and not killed, flee to Egypt so that Jesus can actually fulfill the prophecy that out of Egypt, and we see this in Matthew chapter 2, out of Egypt will come a Savior. So Jesus then, just like the new Israel, comes out of Egypt. And as he comes out of Egypt, the first thing that he does in his ministry is get baptized. Just like they got baptized through the Red Sea. And then the first thing that they then do after the Red Sea is they go into the wilderness for 40 years. What does Jesus do right after he's baptized? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days. And what is happening to Israel as they are in the wilderness for 40 years? They are being tested, tried, and tempted. And as they're being tested, tried, and tempted, what is Jesus doing in the wilderness? He's being tested, tried, and tempted. Where they failed, Jesus fulfills. Jesus is perfect. He does not sin in the wilderness. And he ultimately comes back and he begins his ministry. And we see this played out that as they finally reach the promised land, the first thing that they do is it's not enough. It's not enough. We need a temple We need a king. We need priests. We need prophets. And what Jesus is doing in his life is he's fulfilling everything that they needed that fell short. Temples came and went. Kings came and went. Prophets came and went. Priests came and went. None of them were able to ultimately provide what they needed, but they were all roles and offices and foreshadowings of what Jesus was ultimately going to fulfill. Jesus would be the ultimate temple. That's why when He died on the cross, the temple of God in that moment that had the veil in the temple, which was the only thing keeping us from the Holy of Holies, the only thing keeping us from being in the perfect presence of God, that veil was torn because Jesus Christ Tearing his body and breaking his body and shedding his blood allowed for that ladder to be opened up and the door to be swung wide open for us to freely come in through the baptism waters into the new relationship with Jesus Christ. The new unhindered relationship with God where he then begins forming a new people. David is not the greatest king. Solomon is not the greatest king. Jesus is the better David. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the one who will ultimately take David's throne. Jesus is the ultimate priest. He's the only one that as the priests were trying to intercede for the sins of the people, could only do it temporarily. Which is why they had to keep having the people come over and over and over again, sacrificing burnt offerings. The reason why we don't come up here today and sacrifice animals on this altar is because Jesus Christ was the ultimate sacrifice once and for all that satisfied the wrath of God so that we don't have to continue coming in here and offering that. And so as a pastor, I don't have to be a priest in that regard where I'm uh, interceding for you on behalf of your sins. I don't have to do that. The Catholic priest can stop at some point. They can stop. They don't have to intercede for you at any point anymore. They don't have to pray for you. They don't have to do Hail Mary. They don't have to do those things. We don't have to work ourselves because Jesus did all the work for us. And he's answering one after another. You don't need a king. You need Jesus. You don't need a priest. You need Jesus. You don't need a prophet. You need Jesus. You don't need a, 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 a made-up Messiah. You have the Messiah who is Jesus Christ himself. You even see that in the story of David, where we have the salvation of God in the story of David and Goliath. Where you have this impossible person standing in front of you, Goliath, who a lot of times people will say represents your sin. You cannot defeat your sin. And, 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 and the way that most of the time the story is declared is that you, as David, come with your five stones, and we're just going to start slinging these stones. To try to defeat our sin. Pray more. Doesn't work. Read and study the Bible more. Doesn't work. Go to church more. Doesn't work. Be a good person. It doesn't work. Because at the end of the day, we're not David. We're not. We're the shaking, scared Israelites off to the side, unable to defeat Goliath in our own strength and ability. And we need the least considered person to come and do it for us. We need someone born in Bethlehem from Nazareth. And as even Nathaniel said, is there anything good that can come from Nazareth? Can David really defeat Goliath? Absolutely. We need someone to step in our place and defeat the sin for us because we do not have the ability to do that. Jesus even fulfills not only all the triumphs and characters of the scriptures in the Old Testament, but he even fulfills the suffering of the Old Testament. What they suffered through in their 40 years of wandering, what they suffered through in their afflictions and sins, Jesus ultimately becomes the suffering servant as we see in Isaiah 53. That's promised that there will come one who will literally take on for you everything that you are suffering through because of the fallenness of our world everything that is killing you Jesus will take on himself and suffer it and endure it to the point of death on a cross so that we would be brought into life no longer suffering but life. And so what Jesus is unpacking for us in Luke 24 is that the law of Moses, everything the prophets have to say, and everything that the Psalms and wisdom literatures have to say, is pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ comes in to fulfill all of it. He doesn't come to abolish the law, as Matthew 5 says, but He comes to fulfill it In our midst. And what that means for us is oftentimes it's easy for us to live in the New Testament. But if we only live in the New Testament, we miss out on all the beauty of promises that God has given us in the Old Testament, how He has shown us time and time again. This is about my son Jesus. This is about my son Jesus. This is about my son Jesus. It's all about Jesus. You want to know more about the person and work of Jesus Christ? Look at the kings of the Old Testament. Look at the prophets of the Old Testament. Look at the events and histories and ceremonies and meals and and events and parties. Look at all of those things throughout the Old Testament. They point to my son Jesus Christ. You want to know him more? Know your Old Testament. You want to celebrate Him more? Celebrate the Old Testament. Celebrate all that it is because it is all about Jesus Christ. And so when we open up the Scriptures, what I want you to do is don't just run to your favorite verses like Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ, even enduring heat. Don't just look at those things. Look at everything. Everything. And this is why that we, even as a, on our preaching calendar, we bounce back and forth. We're shooting for a book of the Old Testament and a book of the New Testament every single year so that we can walk through the Bible and declare to you the Word of God that is ultimately about Jesus Christ. And here's the beauty when you read the Bible, it's not about you, it's not. Stop putting yourself in the story. If you do put yourself in the story, make sure you put yourself in the story as those who are failing and those who are sinning and those who are breaking things and messing it up and dropping the arcs of the covenant and doing all those things. Make sure you're putting yourself in the story as those in the waters literally dying trying to get onto the boat. Because that's who we are. And we need to see Jesus as the Savior Jesus as the Messiah throughout the entire scriptures. God is telling us His story throughout our history about His one and only Son, Jesus. And the Old Testament leading into the New Testament, what He's trying to declare to us is don't miss Jesus. Don't miss Jesus. And... As the district church, honestly, like you could literally dumb down our entire mission, vision, anything and everything that we, the reason why we have a little district, the reason why we're in here this morning, the reason why we moved to this building is because we're just declaring that one little truth. Don't miss Jesus. Don't miss Jesus. I don't want you to miss Jesus. I don't want 52nd Street to miss Jesus. I don't want this neighborhood to miss Jesus. I don't want our kids to miss Jesus. I don't want us to miss Jesus. I want us to see Him on the pages. I want us to see Him in our hearts. I want us to see Him as He is literally fulfilling everything and saving us and redeeming us. And as He builds this church, He is continuing to do what Israel did, which was create a new humanity. The church is the true Israel that is meant to be a light unto the world, a beacon To the world, a city on a hill, where when people look at us, they say, What is so different about them? It's Jesus. That's what's different. It's Jesus. We want them to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus in you. And the only way we get more of Jesus is by seeing Jesus in everything that we read. Everything that we read. Get it into your mind, get it into your heart meditate it meditate on it day and night get those moment phone down you can put the distractions down and you can get time to just consider where's jesus who is jesus what is jesus doing and accomplishing because the story is not over The story is not over. I know we're a part of like multiple networks. We're in four different church planting networks. The only church planting network I think we're not in is the one that's probably got the best name, Acts 29. There's only 28 chapters in the book of Acts. But Acts 29 means that it's not done. He's not done redeeming people. He's not done taking the gospel and getting it out. He's not done telling everybody the fact that Jesus Christ still exists, still is working, and still is saving people from the waters of judgment that are going on. And so we declare that. We celebrate that. We worship Jesus because at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus. Let's pray together. And then get out of here. Jesus, we love you so much. And we are so thankful for who you are and what you have done. We thank you, Lord, for all of the stories. And I know, Lord, that I just barely scratched the surface today. Hundreds, hundreds of stories throughout the Old Testament that point to your son, Jesus, and the work that he is accomplishing today in our midst Father, we thank you for him. And I pray that our lives would be marked by your son, Jesus Christ. That we would put our hope there, our trust there. And that we would declare him daily to those around us. For it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. As we come to this time of communion, again, as you think of the Old Testament, And as you think of those moments, especially in the sacrificial moments where there are offerings, and we're thinking of that story of Abraham and Isaac and him taking his son and and Isaac asking him the question, like, I'm carrying this wood, where's the animal? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Where's the one that you're actually going to kill and sacrifice? And in that story, we know that it's a foreshadowing of God ultimately saying, I'm going to send my son. He's not there yet, but he will be there. And he's going to come and he's going to break his body. He's going to shed his blood in order to move you to the side to bring you into his new family and to adopt you into his new family. And so right now, if you're confused and you're looking around, and you're like, I don't know where the uh, communion cups are. It's because we're going to start going back to our old style of things of actually taking some time to get up and come to the altar of the sacrifice in order to grab the bread and grab the juice and then bring it back to our seats to give us some space to think and meditate on what this sacrifice means and what it is doing in our minds and our hearts to point us back to Jesus Christ. You do not have to kill yourself in order to earn God's favor and grace. Jesus did that for you. So, this is an opportunity for you to enter into a time of rest and renewal and thankfulness and gratitude at the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has done in his work at the cross. And so, if you don't have it, go ahead and get up and head back to the table in the back and think and meditate on the sacrifice that Jesus Christ offered for us. And then we will come back together. And partake with one another. Does everybody have it? Does nobody have it? Is there anybody that doesn't have it yet? Okay, if you don't have it, go ahead, head back to the table and grab some. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at infothedistrict.church?